like yay with a little more brains on them I write takes like I'm Citizen Kane on them I get paid on my dividends stay on me I get paid every time it's y'all hate on me Yeah I make my own beats Right shoot Yeah my music on fleek I'm the maestro Every syllable right like a haiku I'm unkillable doomed if you try to I'm addicted to rhymes and I side too I could quit anytime I decide to When they question my clout, my authority I believe in no doubt like Stefani The track you just heard is an excerpt from my brand new album, Amor Fati. You may remember the music videos I put out last year, Blasphemy, Straight A's, and Forward. This new album features all three of those singles plus seven brand new songs. Now, I put my all into this project, and it's a real representation of my passion for music. So if you want to listen to the whole thing, click in the description or search Cold X-Man on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. Now back to the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Mark Andreessen. Mark is an entrepreneur, venture capital investor, and software engineer. He co-founded Mosaic, which was the first widely used internet browser, as well as Netscape. He also co-founded Opsware and Ning. He's on the board of Meta, and his most important achievement is that he's the first billionaire to ever appear on this podcast. Mark and I talk about venture capital as a whole and why it is that VC firms on average fail to outperform the stock market. We talk about the role of hierarchy in companies and the possibility of having a truly flat structure where every employee is of equal rank. We talk about George Orwell's book, Homage to Catalonia. We talk about why corporations go woke and why Mark resists that trend. We talk about the maladaptive qualities that have helped him succeed in the VC world. And we talk about his long-term vision for his VC firm, Andreessen Horowitz. This conversation was recorded live in front of an audience at a conference that Mark and his partner Ben put on. And unfortunately, the recorded audio and video turned out to be really subpar. So your listening experience won't be what you're used to on this podcast for this one episode, but the conversation itself was very interesting. So I encourage you to bear with it. So without further ado, Mark Andreessen. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for doing this episode of Conversations with Coleman. Great. And uh, obviously here you need no introduction, but uh, you may also need no introduction just in general. I, I saw on Twitter the other day, someone from San Francisco tweeted, I just want to meet a girl in San Francisco who doesn't know who Mark Andreessen is. I mean, it's, it's a real problem for young men all through the Bay Area. Um, I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I wish him luck. I mean, that sounds like a real challenge. Girls are actually putting in their, in their Tinder bios, I do not know who Mark Andreessen uh, yeah, is. Yeah, I, I mean, you just can't trust everything on Twitter. Right. Yeah, that's right. So um, the first question I want to ask you is about the VC landscape. So the, the Kaufman Foundation re- released a report recently saying that the average VC fund does not do better than index, index funds when looked at over the past 20 years. Is that something you agree with? And if so, why does Andreessen Horowitz stand out? What is it? What is the special sauce that makes you the elite of, of the VC world? So, so I would say that, that part of the, uh, that statement from, from, from their analysis is, is, is correct. So the, the average venture fund is terrible. So the average venture, venture fund is terrible. It will, it will return less than stock market returns with much higher levels of volatility, which is a very bad combination. Uh, like that's, that's what you don't want. It's the quadrant that you don't want when you're investing. Why is that? Well, the reason for that is sort of venture capital is perpetually overfunded. Um, and we know venture capital is perpetually overfunded because we see the result in the returns, which you, which you basically see is venture capital is an asset class. It's like there's like 10% of venture capital firms that make, make money, make better than market returns, and higher enough returns to compensate for the higher volatility. And then there's like 90% of venture that is just a bad a bad investment. And so venture capital is basically permanently overfunded. It's been overfunded like this for at least 50 years. Um, it shows no sign it, it shows no sign of not continuing to be overfunded. Arguably, it's even more overfunded now than it's, uh, than it's ever been. You know, there's, there's lots of theories for that. You know, one theory is just, as somebody said, it's the triumph of hope over experience. Um, so it's, a, it's, a call that, it's the sixth marriage effect, right? Like, you know, it's like, okay, you you know, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, all the other venture funds I invest in are bad. Maybe this one will be good. And then, but I think there's, there's a deeper problem, which, and, and this is sort of the problem that is very hard for people to talk about, very fr- frustrating uh, to sort of think about, but I, I think is, is sort of the big dominant thing about venture capital today in a lot of ways, the world economy today, which is basically think about it as sort of Western economic development over the preceding 200 years. And, and then more recently, Eastern economic development has generated, you know, many trillions of dollars of, of capital, you know, from the first industrial revolution, second industrial revolution, 
now the, the computer revolution. Huge amounts of capital. That, that capital has, you know, pooled into what are basically giant pension funds, right? So, and these are giant, like, national sovereign wealth funds and these giant endowments and, and, and these giant, giant company pension funds and so forth. Um, all of this money is expected to be invested to pay for the retirement of all of the people in modern society who are, who are aging and are, all, all of these, all of our societies now are aging quite rapidly. That capital needs to generate a, a return. It needs to generate, you know, a 7% plus reliable annual return to be able to pay for the retirement of, of, of basically the, this giant wave of old people hitting all of our societies. Um, and there's just like way more money that needs to be invested that needs to generate that return than there are investable opportunities to actually productively invest that money, right? And, and so that directly translates into why the average venture capital firm is not very good. It's because just there's just a shortage. There are a shortage of literally good things to invest in. Like, like that's the shortage. The shortage is the number of great entrepreneurs, the number of great business ideas. And that's what drags the returns down. And, and I think that mismatch between the available capital to invest in new ideas um, and the actual number of new ideas and people who can execute them, I think that mismatch is like wild, wildly, right, wide in scope. Um, I think it's bigger than ever. I think it continues to broaden out. And I, I think it, it's sort of the factor that's underneath what, the way a lot of people kind of think that, you know, if they think modern society is stagnating or science and technology aren't delivering, I think that's the core thing underneath all of it. There, there just aren't. What is creating that shortage of entrepreneurs and new so, ideas? So this is the big question. And I, I sort of call this the puzzle of the missing Elons, right? So like, okay, so there's Elon Musk, right? So there's Elon Musk and like he's, he does the rockets and he does the cars and he, you know, now he's doing, you know, he was the seed funder originally behind OpenAI, which is doing the AI, you know, do a lot of these AI breakthroughs and he's doing Neuralink and he's doing, you know, he's doing all these things. And it's like, okay, like, you know, there's, there's one Elon, there's, you know, there's, you know, there's a bunch of other people who you kind of put in that category. There's a bunch of other people you kind of put maybe a category kind of a tier right below that, you know, but like, it's like, you know, you can make a list of those people, right? Like it, it, you can make a list and you could probably put it on one sheet of paper. Why aren't there 10 times more of those people, a hundred times more, a thousand times more, 10,000 times more, you know, why aren't they, pers- you know, cars, I mean, to build a new car company in America and, you know, the 19, you know, two, in the 2000s, is like this radical, crazy idea that a lot of people, you know, everybody basically thought would fail. Same thing on rockets. And yet he did both at the same time. And so clearly it is possible to do bigger things than we're doing and to do a lot more of them. You know, it, I look like, there, you know, you can pass the blame a lot on this one, you know, including, I'm sure you can blame, blame VCs for a lot of it. But I, I'm just telling you, like, we, I mean, we, we, we seek these people out. I mean, this is our job. Like we're self-interested, you know, um, sort of uh, capitalists. We're seeking these people out. We're trying to find them. Why aren't there more, you know, then you get into all these really interesting questions about, well, you know, are they, are they, you know, are they, are they, are they born that way? Like, are they, were they trained? You know, how much of it is, you know, inherent capability? How much of it is, you know, choices along the way? How much of right. it is- I mean, I can imagine two explanations. One is just regulation and red tape raises the cost of every new idea. And this is something I've heard not only from big business owners, from small, but, but small business owners. I have a friend that owns a restaurant in, in Greenwich Village that he inherited from his father. And he said, looked at the landscape of regulation over the past 50 years. And he said, I, I can't imagine starting such a business today, right? But then there's also, is it that our society values entrepreneurship less than it used to? Is it that entrepreneurship is seen as not as high status a path as as it used to be? seen as. Well, so yeah, and I think, you know, under both of those factors is sort of this question of do we want change? You know, do, do we want to be in a society that is dynamic? Do we want to be in a society that's changing rapidly? Do we want the disruption that change creates? You know, do we want existing systems of living and sort of structure and hierarchy and patterns of who has power and who gets to make decisions? Do we want that kind of arbitrarily overturned? I mean, I can tell you, like, the CEOs of all the other car companies very much do not want Elon to, like, they would very much prefer he not exist. They would very much prefer that that company fail. You know, it's much better for the consumer, right, um, and for the world at large that that company has succeeded. You know, he's really he's really caused them a, a huge problem, and, and and that's a micro example of you know that question sort of exists at every level of society. Uh, you know, and 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 you know here you, you kind of get into this you know sort of question like you know basically the, the, the future shape of society, and then you know to the extent that you think we're becoming more risk averse as a society or less prone to support you know disruption or, or change. You know, it, you know it's like is decline a choice, right? You know, did we decide that? Was that decided for us? You know, was there ever really a conversation about it? By the way, is is it even any sort of directed process, or is it just a side effect of sort of bad incentive? Of sort of bad micro incentives all along the way. I mean, there's lot, lots of interesting questions in there. It does seem to be trending in that direction. I, I just I, I find that where you started just very interesting on this because if you just look at the money flows and you look at the returns, you, it's just it's like statistical evidence for what is this sort of long run sag um, in you know basically dynamism contra you know the amount of money that's actually available to invest. By the way, there's an optimistic interpretation of this, which is the money's out there. Like so, here's okay, here's an amazing thing. If you just if a space alien arrived, you know, if this guy comes from Mars um, and, and basically says, well, you guys have all these 
have all these problems, but you have all this money, <laughs> right? So there's these trillions of dollars of capital sitting there that like desperately needs a better return. You've got all these really big problems where if you could solve them, you could build these really big businesses around them. Like, isn't this just like a trivially easy thing to solve? You just get the money connected to the people, they build the thing, they solve the problem, it's all fantastic. And you basically say like, what's wrong with you people? He'd have a good point. So I looked at your book recommendation list that you put out recently, and one of the books recommended was George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, which is his memoir account of his time in the Spanish Civil War fighting with the anarchists. And that was interesting to me because one thing he points out is that you know with the, the army, the anarchist army, there was no hierarchy. He points out that you know he's fully aware that in an army, it would seem like the perfect situation for a chain of command, right? And just, yes, sir, and that's how you get things done, which is very much what, what your partner, uh, Ben Horowitz, was saying a VC firm needs to be. And yet he found that in this particular instinct, instance, there was a subculture of a flat horizontal structure, which actually sort of worked well. At least he had a nuanced view on, on whether it worked well, but it was not it's merely a disaster, as, as one would expect, on his account. So I guess that leads me to the question. Do, I assume that you agree with Ben on that the VC firm has to be a, a chain of command, like a one node of decision making. Do you see any successful examples of flattening the hierarchy? Well, so we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the venture thing because it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, and the, the obvious, but I'd, I'd love to talk about Orwell just, uh, for, for a little bit first. So, so the, the, the obvious question is, you know, did the anarchists win? And I, I, spoiler alert uh, for those of you who haven't read the book in the, in the prior, in the, prior, in the you know, 90 years since it came out, um, the, the anarchists lost. They lost quite badly. They actually lost, actually specifically, they lost twice. They lost twice. They, they overall, you know, the, the left overall lost that war, the, the right one. But even within the left, a big part of the theme of that book is actually the competition among the left-wing forces. And it, it actually became a three-way civil war within the left, which was the anarchists versus the socialists versus the communists. And, and again, spoiler alert, the communists won. Yeah, and the communists won because they were being basically funded and supported by Stalin, who was famously not a fan of flat. He was quite fond of centralized centralized control. So more seriously, I mean, look, this, this, is, this is like an endlessly fascinating question around the structure of society. And by, and by the way, the structure of creativity and, you know, to what extent is hierarchy and centralized decision-making an impediment to sort of, you know, sort of creative freedom, creative expression, um, or to, you know, to what extent is lack of hierarchy an impediment to actually executing and, and getting things done. There's another essay, there's another uh, writer unrelated to Orwell from the 1960s who wrote this thing, and it's called The Tyranny of Structurelessness. Um, and it's this, it's this fascinating thing. It's actually a very Orwell-like kind of thing. And it's this woman named, named Joe Freeman. And she, at the time, this was the 60s, 70s. And at the time, it was like a suit. There was like the super vibrant, call it like radical lesbian feminist collective thing movement kind of underway. These sort of people trying to, basically women trying to create these kind of radical uh, female only kind of radical, you know, kind of spa- literally spaces, including, including communities, basically like communes. She was one of these people. And so she signed up for basically this radical lesbian feminist commune, which was going to, you know, overthrow the patriarchy, overthrow all of hierarchy, right? Be a full be a full cooperative. And of course, everybody knows when, you know, men are like hierarchical, but like women, when they're together, they just all get along. Everything is very, very peaceful and, and, and everybody cooperates. Um, and so, um, and so they, they did this, they, they ran this, you know, they, they, they and many others ran this experiment. And so anyway, she wrote this essay coming out the other side called The, the Tyranny of Structurelessness. And basically what she said is, is, is what you observe, for example, in companies that run this experiment where they tried what's sometimes called holacracy, where they, they have this sort of flat, flat structure. Um, and she basically says what you, she called the tyranny of structurelessness. Like what you get is not democracy. What you get it's tyranny, right? Uh, and so, it, which is basically a hierarchy forms, like a hierarchy naturally forms, but it forms in like a weird, unnatural, and unspoken way. And she says that the way that it forms actually is it starts with clicks, right? And so you, you basically like with, within this so-called flat structure, you start to have alliances form. Those alliances start to fight with each other. They start to basically grab for power. And before you know it, you actually have a power hierarchy. It's just a very deeply, you know, dishonest, you know, it's undeclared, right? So it's dishonest, right? It's manipulative. It's cynical. It's deceptive. Everybody's lying, Right. Oh, I don't have any power. But by the way, if you, you know, say or do the wrong thing, like you're out of the community, you know, kind of thing. And so it, basically her argument was the only thing worse than formal hierarchy is informal hierarchy. And I do I do feel like that's a lesson we kind of learn over and over again. And, and like I said, we've had companies that have gone through this, you know, where they kind of think they can have everybody vote on these things. I mean, well, look. The state of California, we go through this. We, you know, we actually, you know, there's this classic debate in, in the construction of government, right? Democratic government, which is, are you a democracy or are you a representative democracy with a hierarchy, right? Which basically is an oligarchy. And, um, you know, in California, we run both experiments. Uh, you know, we have, we have the, rep, you know, we have the legislature and the governor, which is hierarchy. But we also have this referendum process, right, where we have literally direct democracy. And I think most people who observe that are horrified by the results. So, so anyway, it turns out, and then just back to homage to Catalonia for a moment. 
moment. Um, the, the most fascinating part of it, or another fascinating part of that book is he, he actually describes, to your point, he actually describes there was an anarchist society, according to his description, in Spain, sort of in the beginning of that period, and it was like a couple years long. It's what the Chaz, and for those of you from Seattle, it's what the Chaz was trying to replicate. And he, he talks about how every elite and, and rich person sort of pretended to be poor. They started dressing like the poor very quickly. When there was this moment, like there was this moment uh, it's a little bit like what would happen if, like, you know, a group of people crash landed on a desert island. It's, it's like there's this moment where like, everybody's in it together. It was what he talks about in the book. There was this moment in Spain where there was these anarchist communities where it literally was everybody was like very fired up and passionate to, to finally have a community that was going to reflect kind of true justice and true egalitarianism and true democracy. And there, there was this moment where it worked. And if you were hungry, someone would give you food. And if you were cold, somebody would give you clothes. And if you didn't have a place to sleep, you know, and it sort of, and it was this like, he, the way he describes it is it's this magic moment. And of course, one of the things that made it so magic is it ended. <laughs> It was very short, right? It was very short-lived. It, it ended very quickly. And so I, I think you can get these moments. In, and by the way, you see this in companies sometimes early on where there'll be a handful of people, you know, often just the founders of a company who are actually really cooperating and they're really running in kind of a peer structure. You know, look, families run, run, run like this, right? Fam families are kind of inherently socialist kind of in this way. It's just like it works for a small number of people for a certain amount of time. And then at some point, you know, human nature being what it is, animal nature being what it is, you're, you're going to get a hierarchy. It's just a question of whether you have a good one or a bad one. So a few months ago, there was a paper released by two academics called Why Do Companies Go Woke? And um, sometimes when, when I speak about wokeness recently, people ask me to define it, right? So, Well, there's two things we know about wokeness. One is it doesn't exist. Yeah. And the other is it's really good. That's right. It doesn't exist, but we should want it to exist. Definitely. Yes, 100%. So, I mean, how, this is how I would define wokeness. Tell me if you agree. I think it's, it's a belief system which takes all of the foundation, foundational ideas and systems of, of Western society. We're talking markets, um, the rule of law, meritocracy, free speech, and says all of these things are, are, are actually built to benefit straight white men and to harm minorities and women and uh, LGBTQ, et cetera. And so they need to be destroyed. And anyone who is, you know, who disagrees with this needs to be treated like a religious heretic, like, you know, old school Christianity or fundamentalist Islam would treat an atheist, right? So that's, that's the package of beliefs, beliefs I call wokeness. Now, you, you and many others have observed that many major corporations, which historically would be the last people to embrace a, a revolutionary ideology, right? We're talking about the corporations that get criticized for running sweatshops with child labor are turning around and speaking all of, all of the shibboleths of, of this ideology. And the question is why? Is it because it's actually profitable, in which case, you know, it just makes perfect sense? Is it because the decision makers at the firm are true believers in this ideology? Or is it that there is some fear involved where it's sort of like paying the mob to do business, except the mob is your own employees, right? So what do you make of this? Why do companies go woke? Yeah, so there's a big underlying, we can talk, talk about the big kind of underlying movement that got us here. But I, I look, I, I think there's three basic theories, I guess, at least that I would see. There's sort of what you might call this very cynical theory. Um, and the cynical theory, and, and a lot of people on the left believe this theory, the, the cynical theory basically, well, the, the full cynical theory basically is like, basically, we call it radical egalitarian social revolution used to be an economic phenomenon, right? So, so you know, Marxism flowing into sort of socialism, communism um, into the 20th century, uh, you know, it, it used to be. The, the key struggle, the axis of oppression in sort of left-wing egalitarian thought was ec economic class, right? And, and in that structure, of course, you, you know, you had the, the bourgeoisie, the proletariat, the, you know, the, the, the bosses were oppressing the workers, you know, and then therefore the labor movement and therefore the need for communist revolution and kind of all the rest of it. And so the, the cynical explanation for, com for companies going woke is companies and the, the capitalist class and the evil, you know, the evil, the evil capitalists and, and bourgeois, you know, kind of powers of society you know, that was definitely bad for, for them <laughs> slash us, right? Which is because, you know, that's, we get our heads on pikes at the other end of, of that revolution. And so if you could kind of magically transform that energy from an economic class-based struggle into an identity, race, and gender-based struggle, right? Then all of a sudden, like, the capitalists are off the hook, right? And then the capitalists can take up the banner of, like, racial and gender, you know, equality without, like, personal threat to themselves, right? And then this is what sometimes called, sometimes in left-wing political thought, it's called, like, the racial realignment or the racial turn. It's sort of this turn, it's basically it's the 1960s when this happened, when sort of the main vector of left-wing radicalism went from economic-oriented to 
uh, to identity oriented. And so the and so and so the full cynical view is yeah, like it's great. Like for the M M&M, M&M and Mars company, they can sell woke M and Ms with rainbow. You know, it's great. Like it's all good. A P Morgan, you know, Jamie Dimon can BLM. You know, Neil, like it's 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 great. It's good because as the cynical view, as long as the oppression axis is on race and gender and not on economic, it doesn't class, affect our bottom line. It doesn't affect the bottom line. And in fact, you could argue some companies would argue, some people would argue that it's actually good for the bottom line, right? Because it's like okay, now we have a new marketing hook, right? So the cynical view would be like one of the geni- one of the perverse geniuses of American capitalism is being able to absorb political dissent and then resell it, right, to, 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 to the consumer market as a luxury good, right, uh, right, and so, like, and, you know, there's, I mean, you know, fashion houses, you know, fashion houses will happily, you know, they're all during, you know, 2020, 2020, 2021, you know, high, high couture fashion houses would sell you $500 BLM t-shirts all day long, like, look, what a great idea, like, how great is that? I mean, one of the strangest manifestations of this for me was during 2020, you had, basically, you had a, a black man from the hood, poor, murdered. And you had all these, you know, rich people saying, put me on a board in response to that. Now, that would make no sense, except for the fact that I happen to have the same skin color as as that guy, right? That, so, and yet people viewed this as a legitimate response, right? Companies viewed putting more black people on, on your board as a legit response to a problem that is totally different in character, right? A problem of police interaction with someone in a high crime community. And this is how I, I view race as something that just warps people's moral sensors, right? They, they start believing that things, that, that X addresses Y when X may actually have very little connection to Y outside of the superficial element of skin color. So that was, I would say, lead to theory number two. And theory number two is that the capitalist class that has embraced, you know, the, the sort of management class that's, that's embraced wokeism, that the, the basically they're true believers, right? They like they full on believe they believe exactly what you just said. They 100 percent full on believe it when you know Jamie Dimon's kneeling at the bank branch would be like he fully believes it when he's putting whatever you know when when black people are putting boards. It's like it's exactly that. Like they're fully embracing and in some cases like the most radical views of like racial essentialism, um, and they fully believe it and they fully believe that it's like their job as leaders in society, you know, in powerful positions to be able to basic, basically enable the, the revolution, the, the necessary revolution to progress. And, and you know, look, there's a very simple reason to believe that, which is most people just say what they think. I mean, most people just say what they think. I mean, most people have a hard time lying or in a sustained period of time. And if you just listen to what people say, a lot of the time they just tell you what they think. And this is what they're telling us they think. And, you know, if you deal with a lot of these people, a lot of them are, in fact, true believers. And then there's the third explanation that you alluded to in the, in the beginning, which is, is fear, right? And, and some of that is fear of of, yeah, getting roasted, getting canceled, getting fired, getting purged, never working again, having your employees turn on you, right? And then there's the actual, like, the, the other kind of fear, which is actually legal, right, and regulatory fear, which is we do have this, we do have a giant legal apparatus, which is very interested in all of these questions and, you know, has this very interesting standard of disparate impact, right, where if you have, if you, you know, if you have imbalances by, by identity groups on the other side of a hiring or promotion process, it is sufficient to convict somebody uh, on, on civil rights, you know, legal violations and potentially, you know, destroy companies, destroy, uh, destroy careers. And, and, you know, that was put in place very deliberately, you know, over the last 50 years. And that, that is a kind of a, a big dominant legal regime that every company deals with today. And so, so that's the third explanation. What, how to calculate which of these three, you know, what, what the pie chart is. Yeah, that, that I don't know. So given everything you just said, much of which is controversial, you know, some people would expect to look at Andreessen Horowitz and just see a bunch of white guys investing in a bunch of white guys. That's actually not the case. You're, you're actually one of the more racially diverse funds out there. So, you know, I guess my question is, how do you manage to speak your mind on these sort of critiques of racial essentialism and woke capitalism while also, you know, actually achieving the substantive result that many of those ideas claim to want, which is we don't want we don't want the American elite to look like it did in the 1950s, right? So how do you how do you balance that as a yeah? So my partner Ben, you know, I think gets 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 almost all the credit for this, and so I'm mostly just going to kind of echo you know kind of things that he says and and, and does in the firm. But it, I mean, just we we just get kind of the old fashioned view, which is you should value people as individuals and you should value them for the strengths of who they are as individuals. And every individual brings a mix. By the way, every individual brings a mix of strengths and weaknesses to the table. You know, including including me. Um, and so and and what we do at the firm is we basically try to say, well, look, we're not. You know, we try to help people. You know, maybe maybe improve their weaknesses a bit. But like mostly, what we're doing is we're looking for people with very strong strengths. 
and then we're looking for basically identify the distinctive strength of each individual, right? And then and then add it to the add it to the collective group effort. And, and so you know, look, it's you could argue maybe we have the easy version of the problem. It's a venture firm. It's not a big operating company. You know, we don't have fifty thousand or five hundred thousand employees. We have five hundred, and so maybe it's a more kind of tractable you know domain domain to do this in. We get to very carefully cherry pick you know who we bring into the firm. You know, generally speaking, people want to work in this this kind of environment. So we have, have a lot of applicants for positions. Um, we have a lot of time. We run a very long time scale, so we have a long time to you know develop talent. Go you know go try to find the right people and try to bring them in. And so, but but I mean that's that's basically what we try to do. Um, you know, I guess I guess I'd say look, there's a there's a market check. Like we we view, we, we really view ourselves as subject to a market check. But I, I can tell you this: like startup companies do not succeed or fail based on their political views, like or any of these issues. startups succeed or fail. You succeed or fail if they build something people want, right? Like the, the customer decides <laughs> whether our company succeed or fail. And then the customers, by extension of our companies, decide whether we succeed or fail. So it, it, it all has to be subject to a market test, right? Uh, uh, or it doesn't work. Um, you know, look, another thing that we think a lot about, and, and we'll, we're actually going to be, well, we're going to be doing more on this in, in the next few years, it's something we're very excited about, which is, look, tech used to be, tech used to be, I was almost say just tech, like tech, Tech used to be a t- literally like a picks and shovels tools business. Like t- tech literally was for, for like 50 years was a business of, you know, you make computers and routers and switches and databases and kind of all of these esoteric, you know, technical kind of products. And then, you know, you're, prom- you're primarily selling them to other technical people or you're selling them to, to these big companies. You know, tech in the last 20 years has broadened out to be a broad-based cultural phenomenon, right? And, you know, tech is becoming pervasive in basically every area of culture, every area of creativity, right? Sort of every area of the human experience. You know, which, by the way, which is why people are so mad about it, right? Because it's it's having such an such a such a broader effect than it than it, than it used to have. Um, but as a consequence, like tech is intersecting um, into fields where you have you know very different populations who are very dominant in those fields, um, and so you you have a much broader kind of base of both of, of domains you're operating in, and then forms of talent, specialized skills, expertise, right? That all of a sudden are relevant, right? So cultural fluency is very relevant. Ability to basically you know communicate with very many very different kinds of people, different kinds of markets, right? You know to kind of intersect with different kinds of cultural change, and so. I think that's also helpful. I, I think that's also helpful in just thinking much more broadly about talent, um, and I think that's something we're also trying to take advantage of. Okay, so let's talk about Twitter and the culture wars a little bit. So, for someone like me, I weigh in on culture war issues on my podcast. I write about them. I tweet about them. And as rough as that can sometimes be, I view it if I really care about the issue as a good use of my time. So, for someone like you and for Elon. You're, I, you're see talking, what you just you, did you see there. where I'm going? You guys are, you know, every hour that you spend, you know, you are dealing with investing and creating the technologies that are going to determine the future of civilization for the next several hundred, maybe thousands of years. And so it would seem, as an outsider, the opportunity cost for you of, you know, spending the, the, the marginal hour on the next Twitter culture war issue might be very high, right? Your time might be better spent identifying the next entrepreneur, developing the next miracle technology, etc. And I and I know even to a greater extent, many have viewed Elon's participation on Twitter as a huge opportunity cost for him, given that he could be doing just, you know, Neuralink, SpaceX, Tesla, etc. How do you view your choice to spend some portion of your own time weighing in on culture war issues and Twitter and the shitstorm of debate that we call a national discourse. Well, first, would you like a job as our new head of communications or possibly in-house executive coach? My partner clapping in the audience. So first of all, I guess I, maybe we could talk about let's, let's, let's separate Elon. And, I think Elon and I think are quite a bit different <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so uh, I don't want to speak for Elon, but I maybe describe maybe a little, little bit of how he thinks about this. But it's, it's, a little, it's a little bit different. He's doing a different set of things. So, so look, the way I think about it is I, I'm, I'm, genu- I'm genuinely not trying to – I'm trying very hard. I don't know if I succeed. I'm, I'm trying hard – like we as a firm prioritize, like we're not trying to pick political fights. We're not trying to pick culture fights. We're not trying to like get into these things. Um, in fact, we very explicitly have a value inside the firm and how we operate where we're, we're, we're a big tent environment internally. We have people with lots of different views and lots of issues. If it's not relevant to the business and building a great firm and working with our companies and our founders, like we, we don't, we don't like our firm doesn't take positions on lot. But it's just an example, like our, our firm doesn't sign open letters. Our firm doesn't take positions on lots of pu- public issues, social issues that have become kind of very popular to take positions on. So we're, and then we try to not have that happen inside the 
the firm. So we're, we're at least I'm trying to keep keep my own impulses contained. Having said that, we we as a firm and I do have strong points of view, and it is key to how we function and our values. Like we have very strong points of view about what it means to what what technology means in society, um, what companies mean in society, what capitalism means in society. By the way, how companies should get built, right? How companies should get run, like what it means to have an effective company versus a dysfunctional company, right? So so the, so the actual mechanics of what we do and what our founders do, like that 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 stuff is relevant. And there and there are, I, I go through that because there are sort of quote unquote culture war issues that kind of intersect. Well, we we just talked about one. Like there is a branch of sort of cultural activism that says there should not be hierarchy. There should be flat flatness. In the name of equality or egalitarianism, and, and there's a there is literally a corporate management style called holacracy, which basically says companies should be flat with no managers. Um, and every once in a while, we have a company that decides that might be a good idea to try, and we view it as our responsibility to explain to them, you know, basically like why the problems, the, the things that are going to happen, is the dysfunction that's going to happen as a result. I send them the essay that I told you about. They they don't read it. They run the experiment. They end up all you know in all states of you know confusion and chaos. Um, then we come in and try to help them you know kind of untangle it. But you know that, like that that matters like that matters directly. And so we're, we're going to have a point of view on that. And so, so I think to the extent that we're taking strong points of view on the role of technology in society, how companies get constructed, what corporate culture means, then, it, then it's actually integral to what we do. I mean, as you know, like the, these, these questions and issues have become central questions and issues in our society. And so, so they're going to be controversial. I mean, I don't want to speak for Elon. I would say I think he has decided to engage, I would say, I would say more directly. And he, he's very, the good thing with Elon is he says exactly what he thinks. He says it in public. By the way, I can tell you, you know, I, I get to talk to Elon a lot now. Um, so we're working together because we're, we're involved in, the Twitter, in, in Twitter. But, um, you know, look, he, everything he tells me in private, he's either already said in public or he's about to say in public right so we'll be talking about something and he'll you know da, 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 you know he'll he'll say something i'll be like wow that's that was like a bold statement and then he'll tweet it five minutes later right like it's not it's not there's no there's no hidden i can tell you there's no hidden agenda like it's all well this goes back to his whole thing right to everybody's like you know companies all have secret plans and so when he first started tesla he unveiled tesla's secret plan right and the secret plan was what is the logic behind is, is everyone else doing it wrong because the the common wisdom would be there should be some distance between what you reveal publicly and what you plan privately. Yeah, like, yeah. so what's the meta strategy behind that? Well, I, again, I, I don't want to speak for him. I'll, I'll impute what I observe, um, which is just, I, I mean, I guess it, it, he is a force of nature. I mean, he is a force of nature who is able to attract, you know, enormous resources to be able to accomplish huge things. He's able to attract, you know, enormous amounts of talent, like incredibly brave people working for him and really working incredibly hard, you know, on these huge missions. And then he's able to attract enormous amounts of capital and enormous amounts of, you know, attention and support. I mean, look, he built the, the most amazing thing about Tesla in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the cars are amazing and the self-driving is amazing, but maybe the most amazing thing is he built the most valuable car company on the planet. He didn't spend a dollar on marketing, right? Like he, he's not, Tesla's never run an ad, right? Every other car company is like shoveling money out the door just to you know, desperately try to sell their cars that nobody really wants to buy. Like Elon's like, yeah, I've got the car. I've got my Twitter account, right? He, he famously fired, you know, he famously fired his PR staff, right? He it was like five, five years ago now, he fired his PR team. And he's like, yeah, no, look, from now on, it's just me and my Twitter account. There's this great email that came out during one of the lawsuits um, uh, around around uh, all, all the uh, all of his uh, stuff. And and uh, it's this great email from, you know, his board is like on him. It's like, you should stop, all oh, this tweeting is causing us all these problems. You know, you should stop doing this. Um, and they have this long discussion email. And then he finally says at the end, he's like, look, all I can tell you is I'm going <laughs> to tweet whatever I think, and I'm going to let the chips fall where they may, right? And and so it's this thing. And then as a consequence, there there is this method of leadership, which I think he embraces, which is there's this thing you observe when you're running a company, which is it's very often the case that people in the company take the things that are said outside the company more seriously than the things that are said inside the company. And so at least some CEOs have had the experience that, th- that they can get up in front of their employees and they can give a big speech about the vision of the company or whatever. And a week later, like the employees have forgotten it. Um, but like if it's, if there's if it's like headline news in a major newspaper, like it's burned into their brains and they're like, ah, now I understand. Right. So, so nobody at any of Elon's companies is confused about what the mission is. Um, and so look, he's very, you know, this is why when I, when I argue with Elon's critics, I always say, like, look, like, you, whatever you think of him, like, he's totally honest. Like, he's completely honest. He's completely transparent. He says exactly what he thinks. There's no secret anything in there anywhere. And, like, you should like that. Like, even if you're a critic of Elon, you should like that, right? And, of course, it's just, like, people hate actually knowing the truth, right? They really, really don't like it. And so, so I think, perversely, even his enemies would rather, like, not know. So let's pivot a little bit into that. By the way, which, of course, makes Twitter the perfect company for him to run. Because he, I mean, he's the paradigm addict user. Yeah. Well, this is what's so amazing, and one of the reasons we got involved in, in, in his deal is, like, he is the ultimate Twitter power user, super user. So maybe he understands the psychology of his consumers better than... 
like incredibly well, like just incredibly. I mean, you know, for whatever puts other puts or takes people have, like he, he gets he gets all of that like incredibly well. And there's a lot. Look, not everybody obviously can do what Elon does, but I think there's a lot to learn. Yeah. What he does is so different than any of the traditional corporate communications marketing playbook, and the results are so vividly just like completely outstanding and like amazing. Like there are lessons to be learned in there that I think a lot of, including me, I think a lot of us we, we talk about this in the firm all the time. I don't even think I process my way through this. I don't even know what conclusions to draw, but it's but it's very striking. Okay, so with our limited time, let's just pivot to another topic that's big right now, which is AI and specifically generative AIs, um, ChatGPT, Dolly to MidJourney, the whole land, music LM, which is more in its infancy, but the whole landscape of AIs that are generating to an extent creative work and uh, encroaching on the part of ourselves that we thought was most human, which is our, our creativity and our ability to create art and poetry and and so forth. You know, people expected truckers to be put out of work sooner than graphic designers, certainly, but it it looks like the opposite may be true. What do you see uh, happening in the next, say, five years with regard to these generative AIs? Are they going to displace Google? Um, Where are you looking to to see the most kind of advances in this area? Yeah, the thing that's so remarkable about what's happening now is if you if you talk to the leading experts in the field, they will tell you they are shocked. Like they they were not, at least many of them were not, including people who were deeply involved in this stuff, they were not expecting what has just happened to happen. And so it, it feels like one of those really rare Eureka moments that you kind of read about, like, you know, when like you know, they figured out how to split the atom or something, where it's just like, oh my God, you know, we thought maybe someday we'd be able to do this kind of thing, and all of a sudden it's working, and now we know how to do it. Right. And, and then of course the next thing next thing is happening is the split the atom, at least you need the plutonium to do it. Like with AI, like this is going to, this is a general purpose technology. Like now that we know how to do this, a lot of people are going to know how to do this. It's going to, it's just software. And so a lot of people are going to figure out how to do this in a lot of different ways, apply it in lots of different ways. And and by the way, there's the startup rush has begun, right? So now there's all of a sudden there's this massive ramp up of AI startups, um, you know, that that, for example, that we're seeing. Um, And so it's, it's one of those moments where it's just like, oh my God, like this, this, we now have a capability, this thing that we can do that's like, you know, potentially very powerful across many domains of human activity. You know that we never imagined it would work. You know, like it, it, it's expressing itself in, in many different ways. You know, the, the art actually the art hit art, art, the art thing actually hit kind of first, right? The sort of Dolly and Midjourney stuff hit, and then and then Chat GPT came out, and that kind of has catalyzed the the, the text side of this. Um, I think the art stuff is fantastic. I think the text stuff is the biggest thing that's happening, um, and the reason it's the biggest thing that's happening is it actually goes to the nature of text in culture and society, which is it just turns out like we communicate most important things that we communicate. And we communicate many important things through art, visual art, musical art, and so forth. But we communicate like science and medicine, right? And mathematics and software code and law are all communicated in text, right? And so if you have a computer that is really good at processing text and creating new text, all of a sudden it is just like, if it's good at that, it's therefore really good at writing software code. It's also therefore really good at basically doing law. It's also very good at doing medical diagnosis. By the way, it's very good at doing like dinner recipes. It's very good at doing vacation planning, right? Like it's very good at doing, it's very good at doing therapy. (laughs) Like just because it's text, like all of a sudden it's good at all of those things. And and, and that's basically been, that's basically the common pattern. It's really good at writing newspaper articles, like out of nowhere, right? And so we have this magic, basically text manipulation machine. You know, on the one hand, you could say, look, it's just text. Like how threatening can it be, right? It's just text. It's just basically like the the simplest explanation for what chat GPT does is it's just like a very fancy autocomplete, right? Where it's like like a normal autocomplete in like your word processor, it autocompletes a word. Chat GPT today will autocomplete the entire page, right? Chat, the next future versions of this will autocomplete a chapter. There will be a version of this that will autocomplete a book. Like there will come a time when you'll decide to write a book and you'll type out the first three or four sentences and it will autocomplete the rest of the book for you and say, okay, like here's a draft, right? And then, and then by the way, you as the author can look at it and you can say, well, what, what do I want from this? What, you know, what do I want to do? And by the way, you can change the prompt up front. You can say, well, I want it to be funnier. I want it to be, you know, darker. I want it to be whatever. I want more historical references. And it'll, it, and it's like, it's like a puppy, right? It'll just say like, oh, great. I'll give you a draft of that book. And so on the one hand, it's just like, it's just this text autocomplete kind of puppy thing that just like wants to make you happy by auto, autocompleting everything you say. On the other hand, it, all of a sudden it's relevant in all these domains and it's, and it's really good. And so, and so it, it's going to be, it's going to be a big deal. So like when GPS technology came out, some people found themselves just getting worse at knowing where to go, right? People used to have this set of skills, a bear right at the second, you know, and just quickly picking up on, and then you didn't need, you didn't need that anymore. I mean, with ChatGPD, and, and that seems innocent, right? But I find as a writer that I think much better when I've written about something. So not needing to write about something seems like it could come with an actual cognitive cost, which is that our thoughts degrade 
in quality. And so, is that something you would worry about? So you, you may know this is the Socrates argument against, against writing. So Socrates famously, pretty smart guy uh, at the time, about 500, you know, 2,500 years ago, um, he, he, he was a guest written language. And this is when they were figuring out written language, and he was a guest written language. And he said, this is a bad idea. We should not be writing these things down. The reason we should not be writing these things down is he actually, it was actually the same argument you just made, but he was making about oral communication. He, he said, look, he said at, at that time, in, in Greece at that time, in sort of Western culture at that time, you know, 2,500 years ago, he said, look, the way that we process information and conceive ideas and communicate to generate principles of how to live and communicate those to, you know, later, you know, later, later generations, the way that we do that is through oral retelling of stories, right? And he said, basically, um, if, if, if you write down these stories, you're basically going to kill their spirit. Right, because when you tell a story, it's like an like when you tell a story verbally, right? It's it's an it's an engaged two way process. The listener is actively involved. By the way, there's then communication around the story, right? You can actually argue about it, right? So so he said basically, orally communicated stories are alive. And then he said, basically, if, if you write them down, you flatten them out, you make them linear, you make them permanent. There's no more, they're not dynamic anymore, right? There's no more evolution, like culture's going to stall out. Uh, and so it's actually interesting in that, like, he was like, yeah, we, this writing thing is a bad idea. You know, everybody's now going to take that exact same idea. They're going to apply it to what follows writing. Um, so, uh, so anyway, we did okay. Um, I, by the way, maybe Socrates was right. Like, we, we actually don't know what was lost. Right. I mean, people do that and make that argument. I mean, you know, like, in the epic of Homer, people just memorize that, right? You yes. could just say the whole thing top to bottom. And now... Very few of us have that kind of a skill set. That was a great. That was that was a great thing. So that, that's another great example, which is yeah, it's like look, if, if it's oral, you have to memorize it, right? And if it's written, you don't have to memorize. Like the whole thing of written text is it's like a memory augment, right? Like and so you to human memory, and so you don't have to memorize it. And if, right, exactly. If you don't memorize it, how can you know it, right? And so and, that, and now that's just such an alien right concept for most of us that it would never even occur to us to make that argument. So and, and again, it's not to say that he was wrong. Like he very well might have been right, and, and we just didn't get to see the the counterfactual play out. Look, having said that, we found writing to be incredibly useful, right? Like. Writing, without writing, we would have never gotten the Enlightenment. We never would have gotten scientific, the scientific method, right? We never would have gotten technological development. We never would have gotten financial markets. We never would have gotten modern government. We never would have gotten modern law. Like, those all flowed, like, straight out of writing, right? And so, I, and I think most of us probably would not want to take the risk of the trade-off of getting rid of all of those things to go rediscover what happens if we're all still memorizing Homer, right? So I, I think there's a little bit of, this is one of those. Like, this is one of those transformations where we have to think about it. Um, the way that I think about it, like, in, in the work that I do, including, like, writing work that I do, the way I think about it is actually like, the temptation is, is to basically have this be a competitive dynamic where it's like right either the machine's going to write or the human's going to write and by the way there is a fun thing you can do on this I've, I've been doing this now occasionally with some people who i think will not get overly offended uh, which is this like read and read a story in the newspaper right uh, or an op-ed piece um and you just take the title of it and you paste it into chat gpt and you just have it write the thing and then you do the compare and contrast of like which one is better what percent has been better for chip i don't well it depends on your criteria well here would be the other one is can you even tell right like you know can, can you even it's like a turing test kind of thing can you even tell which one is better i mean you know look for short form for sort of classic journalism or op-ed like this thing is pretty good. So, so, so there's a natural competitive dynamic and people are going to get, you know, kind of worked up about that. I think the more sophisticated view and I think the one that I would suspect that you will have and the one that I'm, I would try to have is, no, it, it, this is an augment. Like this is a partner. Um, so this is already happening in software coding. So the, the first big sort of realization of this idea was this uh, thing uh, sort of derived from OpenAI that Microsoft built um, called Copilot, which, which works with their, their software coding system. And the idea basically is, you know, you're writing software code, which is kind of analogous to writing an essay or writing a novel. Uh, you're writing software code as a programmer, and then you've got this other thing, you have this other pane on the side of the screen that's called Copilot, and it's basically like a helpful assistant making, it's a, and so like by default, basically, it's just making suggestions. It's like, oh, I see you've started to write this code. Are you trying to do a whatever sort or display this kind of UI or whatever? You know, if so, here's code that you can just use. Or you can just ask Copilot a question, right? You can say, well, I'm stuck at this point, you know, basically tell me how to do this thing in code, or I'm stuck in this, I mean, for example, I'm writing an essay, I need, I need a historical reference, give me 10 example historical references that correlate to you know this this idea and it gives you those and you pick you pick the one you want and in fact you might even say oh i didn't even know about that third one can you tell me more about it right and instead of having to go to the library or to google or what it just like tells you you know it just explains it to you and so it's basically like i think it's the best tool that i mean i think writers of the future are going to use this all the time because the idea the idea of not using this would be like cutting off your arm like it just like why, why would you do that and in fact the whole idea of artificial intelligence is, is maybe a bad term like it may be the wrong term it may be a better term might be augmented intelligence uh, or, or basically like instead of human versus machine, it's human you know, symbiotic relationship with machine. So I agree there's definitely going to be lots of symbiosis and augmentation, but there, I think there are going to be some domains where it is zero sum. So if Andreessen Horowitz wants a new logo, 
you know, how much money do you want to spend on a graphic designer? How long are they going to take to generate 50 options as opposed to the next generation of Dolly or Midjourney, which you and Ben could just sit down and play with prompts for 10 minutes and get hundreds of options, right? And that, I mean, that would seem possibly to put certain people out of work. Do you think that there, there will be any level of zero-sumness in certain domains? Yeah, there is. Well, look, the Luddites had a point, right? So, the, you know, this, this, original, this argument goes back to the so-called Luddites, which were an actual movement. There were actually people called Luddites at one point. And what they were mad about was they were mad about automated spinning machines for, for textiles, right? As opposed to weaving by hand, because there were hand there was hand weaving that took place that um, you know that all of a sudden wasn't wasn't necessary, and then so they they legendarily they smashed the machines in the hopes that that would stop progress, which it turned out it didn't because people just built more machines. So so this is an old debate, and look, it is it is true, like you know the, the people don't you know the, the, there used to be lots of people hand you know weaving wool, and that just doesn't happen anymore. So you know so so there is that. There used to be a lot of blacksmiths who would put shoes on horses, right? And now that doesn't you know those jobs. There's many fewer blacksmith jobs today as a consequence of the car. So that. That's definitely true. That w- that will happen. Like if the job is to hand design, you know, many logos, you know, basically on demand. Like yeah, that's that's going to change. What's going to happen though, and this this is there are many prior examples of this, including in clothing and in blacksmiths. We'll talk about. But what happens is the job new jobs get created. So there are new jobs get created that are higher level jobs, right? And so all of a sudden you have a diff- you have a kind of designer all of a sudden who's basically a designer on steroids or a designer with superpowers, and and they're not just designing their logo. Like they're thinking like basically holistically about the entire design process, about designing you know designing company the culture, the relationship with the customers. And this is what the top designers actually do, by the way. They're not just writing logos. They're actually thinking very creatively about the whole design experience. By the way, we have designers at our firm. Among other things, they designed this conference, right? And so everything that you see walking around and how it all works like that was all designed, right? Uh, and, and just the fact that the logo on the thing was designed by a machine, that's just such a small part of that larger job, right, that now, now becomes much more possible. The other thing that's going to happen is handcrafted human experiences are going to rise in value when they're very high quality, right? And so the most valuable logo in the world is going to be the one where somebody can say, oh no, that one wasn't designed by a machine. That one was actually hand-drawn, right? In the same way that the best, most, you know, the best art in the world is the stuff that was, you know, the most, fa- you know, the most, the, the most, the, you know, the most valuable famous painting in the world was not painted by a computer who's really good at painting, you know, as a human being. Um, the best shoes you can buy are handmade. You know, the best cashmere sweater you can buy is handmade. By the way, there are still blacksmiths because, like, super rich people still like horses, um, and you know, they pay their blacksmiths and their, you know, people who take care of the horses like a lot of money. So, so there, there will be this kind of recalibration in a lot of these fields. But healthcare is an obvious example. So. Medical diagnosis, the machines are already as good at doctors as medical diagnosis. They're going to be better very quickly here. They're going to be much better very quickly. But medical, di- you know, medical diagnosis, if you have a good doctor, the actual diagnosis is a very small part of what that doctor does for you. And so the doctor of the future will have the machine do the diagnosis so that the doctor can spend more time with the person. So this is more of a personal productivity question. Um, you are an incredibly productive person who absorbs just an amount of information that a, a typical person would find dizzying. Um, I'm curious what aspect of your personality, what trait that you have, which is, which is actually maybe maladaptive for happiness, is most useful in your career. Oh, stubbornness. Yeah. Good old fashioned Midwestern farming <laughs> stubbornness. There's an old, there's an old joke. There's an old joke, old Midwest farming joke. Um, this farmer wins a million dollars in the lottery. You know, big news in a small town. Uh, the TV camera crew shows up to interview him on his you know, front porch. And, you know, he's been farming his whole life. And he's like, you know, they're like, what are you going to do with the money? You want all this money? What, what are you going to do? And he's like, well, I'm going to keep farming until it's all gone. Yeah. So just, I, I just think, yeah, maybe just raw. Yeah. Just raw. How does that stubbornness show up on a day to day level? I just hate giving up. Um, and so, and th- this is become actually giving up on an investment on a, on a company on a yeah kind of anything this comes across so there's there's you may, I don't, on you, an argument with your wife a slightly more evolved level of wisdom uh, when it comes to <laughs> her father gave me an early talking to that uh, that, that helped uh, helped uh, me zero in on that one but there's actually a big debate in Silicon Valley there's this there's this you know in the startup world like look some startups work some startups don't and so there's this endless debate about like basically when to quit, right? And then there's this idea of the so-called lean startup. Um, and the idea of the lean startup is you run an experiment, and if it doesn't work, you basically just like stop and you figure out a different idea. And you know we used to call that fucking up. Now we have this fancy word pivoting. Uh, and uh, and then that that leads to there's this culture in the valley uh, in tech which is so-called fail fast, right? You're kind of proud of yourself for failing fast. Google incarnated this into their Google X program, where they 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 have this they, when they when a Google X project fails, they have a big party celebrate its failure uh, under the theory that it's better to like if it's not going to work to chop it off and work on something else as opposed to just being stubborn forever. I've never been able to do. I mean, I could see a downside to that because if you know you could just fail fast, you will approach 
the problem in a subtly different way than if you feel you have everything invested in it, right? Yes, and sometimes things just take a long time, right? Like sometimes things take a long time. So I'll just give you an interesting kind of fact in, about how our, our world works, which is, and, and we this is true across venture, so that we've talked to many other VCs and they all validate this. A venture firm cannot predict the order of returns, like the order of companies from success or failure, which companies will succeed, which companies will fail within a fund, which is invested over a two or three year period. We can't predict the order of returns, the success or failure of the companies within that fund in the first five years, right? And, and, and so, and there are many, there are many companies, there are many cases, right, where companies come out of the gate really strong and then something happens, something goes wrong and then they turn out to be very disappointing. There are many other cases where they start out very slow and they may have years of development. I mean, Pat, um, Pat, Patrick talked a little bit about this. You know, sometimes these biotech things can take like 20 years. And so you, you can have this thing where they take a long time and then at some point they catch and they really go. Um, and I, you know, if you, if you look at the data on that, it's just like, yeah, there's, there's a mix there. It's hard to figure out whether one, you know, one of those leads to better outcomes than the other. Sometimes things just take time. I will say one of the really things that I'm really gratified about with our firm is that I would have thought starting the firm, the, the fail fast thing had gotten so endemic to the Valley when we started the firm in, in 2009. I, I was worried that like we we'd have too many founders giving up too quickly. It, like, if anything, we've had the opposite problem, which, which I really appreciate, um, which is if, uh, most of our founders, they really genuinely don't want to quit, right? And, and that can lead to difficult conversations of their own because, you know, there is, there, is a ti- there is a time when you have to draw the conclusion that it's just not working. But we, we've, generally speaking, I think our founders, like, we, we've had far more that have just said, no, I'm not giving up. And, I, that's, and that's been, a, say, a, I would say, a very, very pleasant surprise given the, the cultural norms, um, you know, how they were evolving. Okay, so last question. Um, if you look at the next you know, 20 years, let's say. What is your vision for your firm? Is your vision simply to maximize returns by, by whatever means necessary? Or do you have a mission that transcends the mere maximization of returns? And if so, what is that? Yeah. So basically, like, if you just look at the whole sweep of economic history, there's basically only two ways that economies grow and standards of living improve. There's only two ways in which human life gets better off. One is natural resource extraction, pulling stuff out of the ground. Um, and then the other is technology. And those are basically the only two things you can do. Like everything else is just like a rounding error on those things. And, and technology broadly defined, technology being basically applying human ingenuity to develop new solutions to problems, right? Typically involving te- technical means, right? Some sort of, you know, application of the scientific method, application of technological innovation, right? Literally creating a new idea or formula or recipe, right, to, to be able to do things. So wouldn't some people say a third way is, you know, expanding the circle of human rights and justice and equality and, and so forth? Oh, that's great. It's just like to translate that into, that's great, to translate that into economic gains, to translate that into something that is going to cause an increase in the material standard of living, right, then, then it requires application of effort. Ideally, what I would say is those are the same thing. Ideally, you're expanding the pool of basically, say, free people, people who are able to fully express themselves, people who are fully able to participate in everything from education to business to everything else. Ideally, you're then getting a lot more people who can contribute to the process of economic and technological development. Right. Ideally, those are the same thing. And, and, and by the way, that is the story. Like a, a lot of the last 100 years, like that, you know, that has 200 years, that has in fact uh, happened and it, it's still happening. Yeah, so like technology is the lever. Like technology is quite literally the lever that we have to make the world better in like important and material ways. Does it do everything? No. You know, does it solve spiritual crises? No, <laughs> not really. Like, does it, you know. Does it create spiritual crises? Does it create quite possibly, right? Uh, or, or at the very least, you know, maybe it makes old spiritual crises outmoded. Maybe it creates new ones, right? So there, I'm not a believer. Uh, I'm not a believer in what Thomas Sowell called the, what, is the, what was the, um, the, what did he call it? The unbounded vision, the, um, the unconstrained vision. Like I'm not, I'm not a utopian, right? I'm not, a, I'm not a believer in the unconstrained vision. I'm not a believer that we achieve, uto- you know, utopia perfection on earth, but you know, we can make things better, right? And we can, we, and we can raise standards of living and we can improve, you know, medical outcomes and we can improve, you know, technology. We, we can, we can provide many, many, give many more people around the world access to entrepreneurship and the ability to create companies and be able, the ability to create products, uh, be able to make money, be able to provide for their families. And, you know, that, that remains a very pressing global challenge, right? Like the way I think about it is like most people in the world, like we all sitting here today and most of the people listening to this live probably pretty comfortable upper middle class, you know, uh, you know, sort of Western lifestyles. You know, the, the percentage of people in the world who live a comfortable upper middle class American lifestyle, 1%, 2%, right? And so like most people are not able to participate fully in what we would consider to be sort of a fully, you know, basically like a, a fully modern economy and then all of the benefits that kind of flow out of that uh, and have the corresponding level of, of wealth and, and material success to be able to provide for their families, right? To be able to have, you know, kids who, who then do even better than they do. And so, you know, these are just these, we just have lots and lots of these, these things and the way, the way to go after these things, or at least the way we can contribute, right? Is to, is to basically harness capitalism to, to do that. All right, Mark Andreessen, thank you so much for coming on my show. Good, good, great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. 
If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.